Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I am a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode, I talk to Felicity Bright, a speech-language and therapist based in Auckland, New Zealand. Felicity currently works as a lecturer at Auckland University of Technology, coordinating qualifications in case management, as well as providing undergraduate and postgraduate teaching in the areas of engagement, person-centered care, healthcare communication, and qualitative research. Her clinical background is in neurologic rehabilitation. Felicity's research is situated at the intersection of rehabilitation, professional practice, and clinical education. Her current research focuses on how students and rehabilitation providers interact with and engage people in rehabilitation. Her PhD explores how providers engage people experiencing communication disability in stroke rehabilitation, using observations and interviews to understand the different engagement practices providers use. Felicity's research is supervised by Professors Nicola Kays, Kath McPherson, and Linda Worrall. To begin our conversation, I asked Felicity what led her to become interested in the topics of engagement, therapeutic relationship, and hope. Um. For me, I was working as a practitioner in a neurological rehabilitation centre, and it was at the start um, when Deborah Hirsch was doing her research into discharge with people with aphasia. Um, and there was also a paper published by Jacqueline Hinckley and autoethnography about the piano lesson, and it was a reflection on clinical practice. And though the two those two pieces of work were really pivotal in reframing how I thought about clinical practice from being an impairment-based intervention that I did with people to fix the verb impairment or to try and remediate the syntactic issues, Um, but moving towards it being a much more dynamic, co-constructed event in which the practitioner actually played a really important role. I also think what their work did was start to bring issues of professional practice and these unspoken areas that we hadn't really talked about, um, they started to bring them to the fore. You know, they gave them a voice. They structured some research about it. And so it brought it, um, issues into people's agendas, um, into their consciousness. So for me, their work has been absolutely pivotal in framing how I think about what I do. I then, um, after working in rehab, I shifted to work as a researcher in a university at AUT in Auckland. And I was working on a trial of goal-setting interventions with people with traumatic brain injury. And we were using work, um, an approach to goal-setting called um, an identity-oriented goal-training approach, which is based on the work of Mark Elversacker and Tim Feeney and their work with people with traumatic brain injury. And really central, what we found as researchers working on this was that what was really central to how we worked and to people's engagement in this process was um, ideas of hope, of identity, of engagement. We we looked at how our role as researchers seemed to be really important and actually how our ways of working with the patients were quite seem to be quite instrumental in engaging them in this intervention. Um, and that way of working led to both my master's research, which looked at hope in people with aphasia, um, and also to a publication um, in autoethnography of client-centered practice, um, which and those two pieces of work have then become the foundation, I guess, for what I've gone on to do over the intervening years. Yeah. So um, so are you saying that during that research that what you noticed was that um, how you were doing what you were doing was just as important in terms of outcomes mm. as what you were doing? 
Well, the outcomes one is a. I can't make statements about outcomes because we mm. haven't yet got that analysis out there. Um, but certainly, uh, based on the us as clinicians, our perspective of how we were working with our clients, their engagement, but also from the patients, the clients' qualitative reports about their um, experience of the intervention, our way of working seemed to be a really important variable in um, how they engaged in the process. Mm. And it's, you know, that's not inconsistent with other work that's been done in areas such as therapeutic relationship, which have identified that the practitioners, their way of working and the relationship that exists between themselves and the patient seems to be quite an important variable in patient outcomes. So I think we've got this a growing body of research that's saying the ways in which we work is something that seems to be important and that needs to be further investigated. Mm. Well, you uh, published a, a review of the concept of engagement. Mm. Could, you, could you define engagement for us? This review looked at um, a number of papers that have been published in the health and rehabilitation literature, and I'm just trying to remember how many we included. It was 31 papers we included within that review. Synthesising the findings from those, we proposed a definition of engagement that it is a co-constructed process in state that incorporates a process of gradually connecting together with each other and or connecting with the therapeutic program. And that gradual connection enables the individual to become an active, committed and invested collaborator in healthcare. What I mean by co-constructed is that it takes it occurs within a relationship between two people. Between It's within an interaction that engagement occurs. Um, and this, I guess, contrasts with some of the literature about engagement that positions it as a patient state and behaviour and a patient responsibility. And I think one thing our review did um, that certainly is consistent with how engagement is discussed in the mental health literature, for example, um, is that it really highlighted that the practitioner plays a really pivotal role in helping someone engage in healthcare services. Um, so I think, you know, we've given voice to, we've really identified that that is a key factor that, again, needs some further attention. Yeah. Well, and if you assume that it is a, a state, a quality, maybe mm. even a quality of a person's personality when they come into treatment, there's some danger, there's some risk in doing that, isn't there? Mm. I think, yes, I think there is. I think there is the risk that a failure to engage is then attributed to the patient and it's seen as their problem and they need to go away and get themselves sorted until they're ready to engage. Um, and I think as soon as we start labelling patients and attributing things to them, um, that aren't actually all their responsibility. Um, it, we enter a really slippery slope. You know, we've got, if we look at the literature that talks about difficult patients or unmotivated patients, you know, Pound and McLean have done some really interesting work there in stroke. Um, Van Laal, I think it is, has done work around difficult patients within mental health care services. What that means is it often results in a deflection of responsibility. Um, rather than us critically saying, what is going on for this person that means they are how they are and where they are? And what is it that we might be able to do to better support them? Or can we work in different ways to really try and make this interaction and this therapeutic program appropriate for them and work for them? Mm. It's a very personalised way of working that's required. Right, so deflecting onto a patient, meaning something like making a moral judgment, in a way? Yes, uh, sometimes there can be a moral judgment. Mm -hmm. um, there's some literature that talks about the good patient and who is the desired patient. You know, the good patient that we all long for uh, is the one who does the work, who is compliant, who comes along, who practices, who shows enthusiasm. Um, and there's a lot of, I think there is risk that when somebody doesn't meet that mould, that it is a moral judgment that they're not, you know, they are not worthy of our attention. 
Mm. I certainly remember one of the practitioners in my engagement research talking about, well, I just don't have time to put into them. They need to get on and do it. You know, it's not my job. I've got too many other things to do. Um, so it, there is a bit of morality in there. There's around discourses of who is a good patient, who is worthy of my time, who is deserving. There's a lot of complexity that comes into it. And a lot, I think a lot of the ways in which we um, think about those patients isn't necessarily a conscious thing that we have attended to. That's often we make judgments that yeah. we aren't always aware that we're making. Yeah, and you know, I think about all of the conversations I've had with clinicians, and I've been on both sides of the conversation mm. where we're talking about a patient and how they're doing, and let's say this patient isn't doing really well, they've plateaued, and and uh, the the reasoning for it is that they're not motivated or they're not engaged in treatment. Yeah. And, you know, based on what you've said, it's... What what the answer really should be is is something like, I haven't found a way to engage them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really nice way of talking about it, actually. Yeah. And, you know, one of the questions we have um, that I often use to try and reframe how my students think about motivation, let's move it from, is the patient motivated, to what is the patient motivated for? So instead of being a yes-no binary answer, it's actually about us really trying to understand um, what it is that where they're at, what really motivates them, and then how can we work with that. Mm. So if we're going to try and understand patients so that we can help them become more engaged, mm. is, is there something akin to an engagement assessment? <laughs> um, well, there are engagement assessments. There are a number of measures of engagement. Um, and certainly in the conceptual review, we really problematize a lot of the measures that are out there. There are several that have been developed in um, the rehabilitation literature. However, when we look at the, the psychometrics and the ways in which those measures were developed, it's I don't think we can say that they are robust measures that truly measure engagement. Um, on the whole, measures are completed by the provider, not by the patient. Mm. And I query how equipped and how able are we as an external person to judge someone else's engagement, particularly if we think about people who have communication or cognitive disability, the ways in which we expect people to show engagement mm -hmm. through offering information, through doing what we say, um, though, you know, those very behaviours are very impacted by the whole reason that they're coming to us in the first place. So I think there are a lot of um, problems with practitioners trying to measure patient engagement. Um, I, there have been a couple of measures developed in mental health that are completed by the patient as well as by the practitioner. I think, you know, that's a, that's a good step forward. However, I actually think this old-fashioned thing of let's talk to the patient about their engagement is actually probably the best starting point. You know, how many times do we actually talk to them about how is this going for you? Is this working? You know, to be fair, actually, a lot of practitioners do ask those questions. Um, but I think it's a really important question we need to be asking when it appears that someone might be struggling to engage. Sometimes then it can be easier to kind of retreat from the situation. Um, whereas actually, maybe we need to put it on the table and say, I'm getting the impression this might not be working for you. Can we, can we have a discussion about that? One of the things I've found really helpful in terms of understanding engagement is um, talking to people about their previous experiences of engagement. Tell me about a time you went to see a physio, a doctor, whoever, and you felt really engaged. What was going on? What was it that the physio was doing? What was it that the doctor was doing? How were they working with you? And what are the things that they would have seen that told them that you were engaged? And kind of taking it away from the, the immediate situation we were in to getting a better understanding of how this person ticks and what might be important in engaging them in, you know, in broader healthcare contexts 
can actually be a really, really good starting point for knowing how then to work with that person. Mm. You know, I think client-centered care implies that not only are we reaching more personalized goals, but that in client-centered care, the patient's role changes from being more passive to being more of an equal participant, more engaged. Mm. And I wonder if these kind of questions that you said, you know, you said, well, how often do we really ask our clients, how are things going? How does that, how does that feel for you? Does that, is that helping or mm. not? If not, why do you think mm. that, that we're acknowledging their autonomy in this role? We're acknowledging their competency mm. to participate. Do you think that, that that is one of those elements in engaging them beyond just the understanding their interests? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the uh, a core thing around true client-centered care is around a more equal partnership between the client and the practitioner. And I think as soon as we start to ask questions about how is my way of working working for you, we start to position ourselves, um, we take ourselves away from the expert role that um, historically practitioners have held. We acknowledge that we are not the experts, that maybe we could do things differently, that we are seeking the patient's opinion about how we are working. So I think that, yes, asking those questions, being humble, being open to different ways of working and to changing how we do our work, those are core attributes, I would say, of client-centred care. People have different levels of engagement. Is it always easy to know if people are engaged or not? Most likely not necessarily. Um, Certainly, there's been some interesting comments from the mental health literature where um, people talk about pseudo-engagement, that people might be going through the motions that appear as though they're engaged, so they attend, they comply. Um, Yet when you actually interview people about their experiences and their engagement, they say, no, I'm not. I'm just going, you know, to some extent, I'm going through the motions or I'm playing the system. I know I have to go to these appointments because if I don't, there are these ramifications. Um, So I think there needs to be some caution sounded about making calls about about engagement. The literature has indicated non-verbal behaviours can be uh, seen as good markers of engagement. Uh, people like Nina Simmons-Mackey and Joe Jackson-Miko did some research around engagement in group therapy sessions, and they looked at things like gaze, at body positioning as markers of engagement. The observational research I did with people in stroke rehabilitation, certainly their nonverbal behaviours could be indicators. Um, eye contact, the the terseness of their voice at times, their body positioning um, were in many instances consistent with what they then later reported about their own engagement. Mm. Um, However, there were also quite a pool of participants who thought it was really important to be polite And so all of their body language, their eye contacts, their nodding, their smiling, you know, the encourages, they were all indicating they were engaged. Yet when we spoke to them, that wasn't, certainly wasn't what they reported. So I think we just need to be cautious Mm -hmm. about um, assuming that a person's body language and voice and what they say and do is a highly reliable indicator of their Well, what about promoting engagement? Mm. First of all, do you believe that that's something that we can do? Yes, I do. So certainly from my um, doctoral research, one of the key findings that came out is that there were a number of things that practitioners could do. And when we looked at practitioners who were um, intentionally engaging patients and who were successful in engaging patients, as determined by the patient's report, Um, There were a number of different characteristics that kind of came into play 
that I think can provide a helpful framework for thinking about what might we do to help facilitate engagement. So some of those things were around um, really getting to know the patient as a person. Tell me about your experiences. What would you normally be doing if you weren't, you know, if you hadn't had your stroke? Having that sense of getting to know them, their interests, what motivates them, um, and moving beyond that person as patient role. A second thing that seemed really important was developing a two-way relationship. So it's not just us getting to know them, it is them getting to know us as people as well as the speech therapist or the physiotherapist. Um, it didn't require that practitioners gave extensive information about themselves and there's often concerns about professional boundaries, for example. But it's often the littlest sides that people make, like, oh, yeah, I used to go to that beach when my kids were little, or just, you know, a couple of sentences about what they did on the weekend. It was showing that there was a sense of humanness within the practitioner that was really important. We're both in this together. We're both humans working together. Other things that were important were identifying and responding to the patient's priorities not just asking about them for the sake of asking about them, but showing that you were then incorporating the patient's priorities into what you were doing and how you were thinking about what you were doing. Integrating um, two types of work seemed really important. And I, one of the key things I argue in my thesis is that relational work is a critical part of rehabilitation and a critical part of engagement work. What I suggest is that therapy needs to incorporate both relational aspects of practice, so that's the getting to know, the developing the therapeutic relationship, the spending time together as two people, and it also needs to incorporate technical disciplinary-based work. When we had practitioners who were only focusing on doing the job that they were trained to do within their disciplinary structure, um, and they didn't attend to the relational aspects of practice, that was often highly problematic for engagement. So really what we want people to be thinking about is a valid viewing relational work as a valid aspect of therapeutic practice in a rehabilitation context. We also looked at things like practitioners really working reflectively and very, very critically about how they were. One of the... Um, Kristen Whaley-Hamill is a researcher in OT working in client-centred care. And she talks about how clinicians often say, oh, but we do that. We're client-centred. We're reflexive. I communicate. I'm really engaging. She really critiques that and says, well, actually, is that the case? Or is there actually a risk um, that we are talking the talk and not walking the walk? And what we saw was when clinicians were really critically interrogating their ways of working, thinking about what was it I did? What was the impact? What did I notice? What does that mean for this person's engagement? What does it mean for how they come to trust me? What might I need to do differently next time? Clinicians who were thinking about their practice in that way seemed to have much more success in, in engaging people in rehabilitation. Um, other aspects were facilitating two-way interaction, so that, and, and this flows really nicely with this connecting as two people. But it wasn't just that we were asking questions or telling what to do, but there was actually an interactional flow of question asking, answering from both parties within the encounter. Um, and that could be evident even when a person had a severe communication disability. We looked at things like threading um, forms of communication together. So not just talking about the here and now and the specifics of therapy or stroke rehab or whatever, but we were including that relational communication of, you know, giving information about ourselves and so on. And that there was also a sense of active listening and really trying to understand the person and their experiences and what was going on for them. Mm -hmm. So what we found was in order to work in an intentionally and successfully engaging way, it really required practitioners to weave all these different ways of working together in quite a cohesive, coherent, consistent way across all of their interactions. And that was what was really crucial in kind of providing a frame for uh, in which engagement could occur. Yeah, what I think I hear you saying, or at least implying, is that developing a good relationship with your client 
focusing on these, re- these relational aspects of practice require skill, a kind of skill. Mm. Um, as therapists, I think we spend a fair amount of time developing our conceptual knowledge and our technical skills in mm. these traditional areas. But, um, you know, my experience, both from myself and from observing my colleagues, I think, and talking to them, is that this stuff that you're talking about, we kind of approach it intuitively. Is that enough? We hope that we approach it intuitively. We assume we approach it intuitively. Um, And some practitioners absolutely do, but I think those practitioners are the ones who are highly reflexive and really critical about their ways of working. I would argue that given how essential therapeutic relationship seems, well, how important it seems to be, I don't think we've got the evidence to say essential, but you know, given that we are seeing increasing evidence that engagement, that therapeutic relationship, that things like patient-practitioner rela- uh, communication are really important in engaging and in therapeutic outcomes, I suggest that now we need to actually be saying it's not sufficient to just think these things can happen by chance. I argue that these are actually core aspects of practice that we cannot just hope will develop, that we cannot just leave until the person is actually practicing um, and assume that once they're on the job, they'll pick these skills up. I argue that these are aspects of practice that we need to be incorporating within our undergraduate student education or pre-qualifying student education. And we need to be really supporting practitioners to be reflecting and developing these skills um, within their work. So, in short, it's not enough to say they're intuitive and they will develop over time. These are skilled ways of working and we need to treat them as a clinical skill. And we need to be acknowledging and valuing and validating them within our practice. Yeah, well, you've, I think you and your colleagues have even gone a little bit further and making a statement, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, something (laughs) akin to, well, these skills are more important than the technical skills overall. I don't know if we'll put our neck on the line and say that. However, I think what we will say is that we need to be making a shift from just um, focusing on technical intervention with patients to also thinking about how can we intervene with practitioners to think about their ways of working and how that can impact on patient outcomes as well. Um, one of my one of the quotes from one of my colleagues um, in a book chat we've written, you know, she talked about saying there are so many variables we know impact on patient outcomes, and a number of those variables we can't necessarily change. However, there's one variable we know that we can possibly change. And that is the practitioner and the role that we play when we're working with the patient. And what we're kind of arguing is that we need to now be focusing on how is the practitioner working, how are they thinking, how are they valuing um, their practice, and thinking about how can we work with that um, as an intervention in and of its own right as well, in the hope that that will then improve patient outcomes. Mm. Certainly if we look at the therapeutic relationship um, Literature, there is evidence that a strong therapeutic relationship has significant impact on patient outcomes. And some of those outcomes are things like pain, depression, um, productivity, compliance, the patient's view of the collaboration. And we know that some of the key features of a therapeutic relationship are things like trust, communication, rapport, mutual respect, active collaboration and um, empathy, you know, those are all things that are really important and those are things that clinicians can do something about. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I have the experience of patients telling me that they they very much appreciate um, our relationship or mm. the the care that I showed them, et cetera. And, and I appreciate that. But what I hear you saying is that therapeutic relationships affect the the more traditional outcomes that uh, we're responsible for the improvements in patients functioning in as communicators for example why do you think 
How does that work? That's a really good question. And to be honest, I don't think we actually have a clear understanding of the mechanisms by which that occurs. I would say, um, I think a couple of ways in which it can occur is that it sets a scene um, for the therapy to go ahead. It often can help um, mean that therapy is working on what is meaningful and motivating for the patient. And I think it also creates a space for um, active discussion and dialogue about how are things working, being able to revisit if things aren't working, being able to really tailor um, therapy to the patient's individual specific needs. Mm. So I think there's some work that can be done to really try and understand the mechanisms by which it works. Um, but certainly the evidence so far indicates that it is something that we do need to be thinking about more and looking at to better understand. Yeah, but a better relationship suggests better communication. Better communication suggests that clinicians understand their clients more. They make, they help them make better decisions. You capture it really nicely. Yeah, and certainly core elements um, of the therapeutic relationship that have been talked about are things like respect around communication, around empathy. Um, so again, I think that means that therapy can be better tailored and better individualized to the individual. Yeah, yeah. you know, I had an interesting experience based on an, an injury that I suffered and going to a uh, very well-known clinic, a, a university clinic, and they were very polite. They had their questions for me, but I had a story too, mm. and they didn't really want to hear it. Mm. They, they politely moved me on to the information they needed to collect and mm. what they were interested in, and they gave me a series of exercises to do at home. And I was in some pain, so you would think I would have the motivation to do these exercises. Mm. But I got home and I, was, I had some resistance to doing them. And I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. You mm. know, I mean, I've got this pain. I want to get rid of it. Uh, these are the experts. Um, where's this resistance coming from? And the more I kind of reflected on it, I think that my experience with them was superficial. And because it was superficial, I didn't really feel like they understood me. And if they didn't really understand me, then these recommendations were generic. Mm. They weren't sp specific to me. They were given to everybody or the generic kind of person with my complaint. Yeah. And, um, and so there was an issue of not trusting in their competency, but trusting their decisions and their recommendations. Mm. Yeah. One of the, um, we recently did a piece of research uh, that really looked around therapeutic connection, um, which is akin to therapeutic relationship, but also closely overlapping with engagement. And some of the key things that came out about that was this notion of making connections and part of that is making connections as people, but also knowing that the work that you're doing is connected to what is important to you. For patients, it's having that sense of, do they know me? Do they know what is important to me? Is what, they are is what the practitioner is working on, is that really responding to my priorities? And do I feel that I have been heard and I have been able to have a voice and a say in this process? Um, and that, you know, that really comes to mind when I hear you talk. It's that sense of being known is actually a really crucial part within the process of engagement, being known as a person. Yeah. Do you think there are common barriers that clinicians experience that um, corrupt this process? I think practitioners work in really complex environments. We're working within funding structures which often prescribe or potentially limit episodes of care. We work in organisations that prioritise and value and validate particular forms of knowledge and particular ways of doing things. 
And the result of that is that what is um, is that practice is often working um, to those structures and to what others say is important and valuable and valid. There's a real risk, I think, with some of the engagement literature, the engagement work and the therapeutic relationship work that it is seen as clinician blaming, and it absolutely isn't, because clinicians are working within really complex structures and complex organisations. And they, those structures and organisations can often be big factors in limiting how practitioners work. Well, and those, those, uh, those institutions and the constraints they put on clinicians, they can affect clinicians' engagement too. Mm. And I guess from what I've heard you say previously, that obviously would impact on patients' engagement. Certainly the evidence from my research is that the practitioner's engagement um, is really important in patient engagement. If the practitioner isn't disenga- is disengaged, we will often see the, uh, the patient being disengaged as well. And, you know, thinking of engagement as a co-constructed process, it's a, you know, it is that two-way relationship where engagement feeds engagement, disengagement feeds disengagement. Um, and for that reason, the practitioner's engagement or disengagement is really important to attend to. However, I think one of the challenges we have is that the practitioner's engagement is not something that we often talk about. And one of the, I know some of the um, people in my research talk, you know, they, I was asking them to tell me about times they were disengaged and there was quite a hesitation. And they were even saying, oh, we don't really talk about that. that that's not something that I, I really want to go there. And, you know, eventually we they would go there and, man, the stories they told were just so valuable. But I think, you know, we need to be actually creating spaces where it is safe for practitioners to say, I'm really struggling in this situation. I'm feeling disengaged. This is not working for me. We've got evidence that it seems to be impacting on patient engagement. So we have to be attending to the practitioner's engagement or disengagement. Some people would argue, well, most practitioners have access to supervision. So maybe we, you know, they can do it there. But supervision often happens, often occurs within a power dynamic, commonly with a manager or with a colleague, um, where it may not actually feel safe to do so. Practitioners often, there is often a sense of, I should be able to do this. You know, we think about engagement as something that is intuitive or therapeutic relationship as intuitive. One reason it's really important to say these are skills is to kind of be able to create that space to say, what do you think you need to work on? How can we then support you in developing these skills? We had, you know, we had practitioners talk about how their disengagement impacted on their clinical decision making, on their discharging of patients. Um, you know, I really, really valued their honesty when they were telling their stories. But, you know, we can't just keep pretending that it's all okay and. We have to really start attending, I think, to the clinician's engagement and to their disengagement and thinking about how can we support them to be working um, in ways that help the patient engage. Yeah, well, I've certainly worked in, in different environments and those environments had influence on my engagement mm. at one time mm. or another. Mm. It is not, you know, I still remember listening to one interview we did with one participant um, who was talking about her practice and she was a rehabilitation practitioner and as she was talking, her voice was very flat, it was often quite trembly, she was talking about really struggling to engage with her patients and really struggling when they were disengaged and then she talked about uh, working in a different context and there was this immediate change in her voice you know she was her voice was full of tone enthusiasm the language she used it was fantastic it was awesome it was fabulous I loved it you know her facial expressions were just completely different and it was a really startling contrast of how context and it may be organizational context it may be clinical context but how those factors can really impact on how the practitioner is engaged and how they work. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about hope for a bit? We can talk about hope for a bit. Good, good. So, um, well, to start off with, in my experience, cl- clinicians struggle with the concept of hope. 
and how much hope to uh, promote, etc. You've done some research in this area. Mm. What, what, sh- what have you heard? What's your experience? What have you found? There's a really good quote I've heard, and I'm just going to look at who said it. It was some, uh, Christy Simpson, who's a feminist um, ethicist, and she was writing about the hope and saying that you know therapists often strive for realistic hope that can be fulfilled, whereas patients are striving to maintain hope. I think patients and practitioners can come can understand hope and its functions and its meaning in different ways. And there's a body of literature that says hope can be conceptualized in a, many different ways as a way of being kind of an internal state through to being um, a wish or a dream or an aspiration or a goal. And there is potential that um, if a person's hope is seen to be synonymous with a goal, that can then create a response that goes, oh, actually, I don't know if that is realistic and that's something we need to talk about. Certainly the research I've done with people with aphasia is that often when they talk about hope and what they hope for, it's not a goal at all. It's a it's a wish. It's it is a hope. It's not a hope is not an expectation. Mm. They do not necessarily expect firstly that they will achieve it or that the practitioner will help them achieve it. Um, but it is something that performs a um, a motivating function, a sustaining function. It helps people kind of, um, I guess, sit with where they're at um, so that they can manage the current uncertainty in the current space of challenge while also living with a future that's really uncertain and really unknown. So hope provides quite an important function in terms of keeping people sustained and engaged with where they're at and keeping them going. Mm. So this fear of providing false hope, which I think for me has always been a fear that my patients will have expectations that don't come to pass, and there'll be some negative psychological reaction Mm. on their part that I played some role in. Mm. Um, Now, I can't say that I ever remember that actually playing out that way yeah so is that fear that i have generally unfounded quite possibly yeah i think there is a what you're what you're highlighting there is this difference between expectations and hopes and that actually, again, like the engagement stuff, maybe what we need to be doing is having a conversation with our patients about what is it that you're expecting or what is it that you're hoping for? You know, is that actually something you you do genuinely expect or is it more we'll see how it goes and we'll keep progressing towards it? Having an understanding of where the patient is at with their hopes, what they mean for that person is a really important process. We see, certainly we see that hope can be quite a dynamic experience where people move in and out of having just a broad sense of hope, moving into having really specific hopes for the future, but also then kind of coming out of that because that's just not where they're at. Their situation's changed. Um, And I think we need to acknowledge that it is a fluid state. To to illustrate this, um, I keep, I always think back to a presentation I heard by Mark Ilvesarker and Tim Feeney again. It was about 19, oh no, 2006 or so at a traumatic brain injury conference. And they were talking about a young guy who had a, um, a severe traumatic brain injury. He was from a background of um, having had quite a lot of um, substance abuse. And when they talked to him about what his goals were and his hopes were, he wanted to be a doctor. And so for most practitioners, I think we would probably have quite a strong reaction to that and go, oh, it's quite so realistic. Um, but what they did instead of going there was they they just worked and engaged with his ideas. And they talked about, okay, so that's where you want to be long term. What might be the first step in helping you work towards that? What might be the second step in helping you towards that? And almost, yes, keeping it there, acknowledging it, and giving voice to it, which some practitioners might not be comfortable with, um, but 
acknowledging what was important to him and then working with it at a step-by-step level. And they said that this guy, after a couple of years, actually ended up becoming a paramedic. And for him, no, he had changed his expectations. Becoming a doctor had gone off the agenda for him. For him, his hopes and his dreams and his goals had changed by engaging in this process of thinking about what might a possible future be. There's research that shows that having a you know, a sense of a possible future is a really important protective mechanism for a person. Um, otherwise, you're just in this liminal space betwixt and between where there is no no sense of where you could be going. So, you know, we would argue that hope actually has some quite important therapeutic benefits. But maybe rather than seeing it as a threat, we need to think about, so how can we work with this person's hope? How can we have conversations about what this person is hoping for? How can we understand... Is this a goal and expectation or is it something that they're musing over and that is, you know, is something that is important um, but is not a plan, something that they're wedded to? Right, and that over time and through a, a process, patients will come to alter their hopes on their own terms. People may well, or yeah. people may surprise us. You know, we yeah. we had one client in our study who had goals of doing a you know a significant ocean swim and had been told quite clearly by his physios that was never going to happen. He did it. Um, <laughs> you know, so sometimes people people actually do more than we might think. We only have a very we have a particular knowledge, but we don't have our expertise in that person and their injury and how their body is necessarily going to respond. One of the frameworks I found really helpful in thinking about hope, um, because it's not black and white, and I think, you know, I there is a risk, you know, we don't want to feed unrealistic hope, because there can also be opportunity cost that comes as a result of unrealistic hope. You know, people might pursue, you know, really expensive interventions that takes that's at financial cost, that takes time from their family, all those kinds of things. And I think, you know, there's a lot of challenges there that I don't have an answer to, so I'm not going to state that I do. Um, but again, Christy Simpson, who's this ethicist, and also um, Andrew Soundy, who's done some research in HOPE, um, they've suggested that we should be posing questions that guide our thinking about HOPE and unrealistic HOPE. And talking, you know, maybe we should be thinking about what are the positive and the, the negative effects of having this so-called unrealistic hope, and I'm using quote marks here. We should be seeking to understand why does this person have these hopes? Mm. What are the positive and the negative effects of removing hope? Because there are some really big questions we need to ask about what happens if I, as a practitioner, go in and try and remove that person's hope. Who says what is realistic? And how can we as practitioners support hope the state of hope without supporting unrealistic hope. You know that we have challenges affecting our practice of you know evidence-based medicine. Where does a person's hope sit in there when we've got evidence that might suggest that this is not realistic? Um, there, you know, there's a lot of complexity there that I don't have an answer to. And I really like how Soundy and um, Herestad and Byron, who are other authors in the area, just promote questions rather than promoting what we should or should not do. Right. It, some of what you s have said have reminded me of goal attainment scaling mm -hmm. and how it allows for possible outcomes and probable outcomes. Yeah. I love goal attainment scaling. And 10 years ago, I would never have thought that I would say that um, because I've only really seen it used as an outcome measure. However, um, within our trial of goal-setting interventions where we used the identity-oriented goal training, we also used goal, goal attainment scaling as another intervention. And coming out of that, what we realised is that goal attainment scaling can be a really powerful intervention in and of itself. So a goal attainment scale, for those who don't know, has five steps. And often step five is the, you know, the really desired outcome. And step one or two may be where the person is at at the moment. So the way we used it was we would start with step two being where is the person at at the moment. And then we talked about step five and said, 
where would you like to be? Think about yourself in six months, a year's time, really getting that possible self and that vision of future. Um, and they would come up with it. And we would write that down as step five. We didn't try and modify it at all. And one reason I think that was really important is that it gave, it really valued the person's words and their experience. But then what we did was we used steps three and four to talk about, so where would you like to be in six weeks' time? What do you think is achievable? What do you think is important to you? And that's where we started to break it down into something that was a little bit more concrete, a little bit more measurable, and yes, probably a little bit more realistic when we could start to engage in conversations. So step three would be where would you be in six weeks, ten weeks? Step four might be, what would be a really fantastic outcome, actually, maybe in six weeks or three months that you don't you don't quite expect, but actually would be really quite nice. So there we could start to tap into hope as well and open up possibilities. Um, and we found that was a really powerful experience. As an aside, our one um, was, what would happen if things got worse? And then we had a conversation about what would what do we need to do to try and make sure that you don't go from a two to a one, that things don't get worse. And that would also often help us then know how we could intervene with the person to help help move them forward towards their desired three or four level goal. So I personally, I think goal attainment scaling is actually a really powerful tool that we could be using um, quite wisely to try and, um, as a tool for engagement, hope, having conversations about these things, but also um, working within our constraints and our confines of length of stay, episodes of care, um, and trying to work out what is evidence-based and what do we, from our own experience and from the evidence, know is potentially most likely to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Felicity, thank you very much. Uh, this has been really interesting, and in your, your research on engagement and hope is... I encourage everybody to read it because I learned a lot from reading it. Uh, what what are your what are your current what are you working on currently or plans for um, the future? So plans for the future. I'm just put in a grant to look at how we look at relational aspects of care within um, physiotherapy student education. So I'm really interested in thinking about how do we talk, look at engagement and hope and therapeutic relationship in both clinical practice and in student education. So I'm starting, this grant is looking at student education, um, but I would be interested over the next year to be doing some more work around how can we intervene with clinicians using um, designs like participatory action research, which really draws on the expertise and the interest of practitioners to develop interventions to help support them to reflect on and modify practice where it's appropriate. So that's the overall direction I'm going in. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, a few things, a few things to do. <laughs> well, good luck and thanks again. Cool, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. You can learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences by visiting www.ancds.org.